From New York, this is Democracy Now! We are all here to charge this administration with genocide! Israel and the United States are jointly complicit in the ongoing Nakba in Palestine. Together, they are rending international law worthless and irrelevant. In scenes reminiscent of the 1948 Nakba, tens of thousands of Palestinians continue to flee on foot from their homes in northern Gaza as Israel intensifies its aerial and ground assault. Three Palestinian groups have petitioned the International Criminal Court to investigate Israel for committing genocide and apartheid. We'll speak to Palestinian human rights attorney Nora Erekat, but first, we talk to the Israeli-born historian, Brown University professor Omer Bartov, one of the world's leading authorities on genocide. Israeli political leaders and military leaders have made very startling and and frightening statements about Gaza, speaking about flattening Gaza, speaking about moving the entire population of Gaza out of Gaza. That is a clear intention of uh, ethnic cleansing. So those statements uh, show intent, and that's a genocidal intent, which is often very difficult to prove. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israeli tanks have surrounded hospitals in the Gaza Strip following a series of strikes on Palestinian medical facilities. The World Health Organization reports al-Shifa in Gaza City, the territory's largest hospital, remains under heavy bombardment. Thousands of Palestinians left homeless by previous attacks have been sheltering under tents in the hospital's courtyard. The Al-Nasser Children's Hospital in Gaza City reports it was attacked twice Thursday and nearly had to halt operations. And the al TC Children's Hospital, home to Gaza's only pediatric cancer ward, caught fire after an Israeli strike. Video shows patients and medical workers evacuating Rantisi, carrying white flags, then running in a panic as the sound of gunfire rings out. At least six of Gaza's hospitals have come under fire in the past 24 hours. The Palestinian death toll is nearing 11,000, including 4,400 children. On Thursday, the White House said Israel had agreed to pause its assault on northern Gaza for four or up to six hours per day to allow civilians to flee south. The U.N. estimates on Thursday alone, 50,000 people were forced to travel on foot along what Israel's military is calling a humanitarian corridor. Many of them compared the mass expulsion to the 1948 Nakba that saw about 700,000 Palestinians pushed out of their homes and turned into refugees during the creation of the State of Israel. What do things look like behind us? Destruction and death. It has become here a second Nakba for the Palestinians. What more does the world want? The beach refugee camp is burning. The whole northern and western areas of Gaza are as well. They are driving people to schools and scaring them so they would leave. What we see today is a plan for a second Nakba. Nakba means, uh, means catastrophe in Arabic. 
Craig McIver, the U.N.'s former top human rights official in New York, condemned Israel's so-called humanitarian corridors, writing, quote, four-hour pauses between massacres are not humanitarian. They are merely managed ethnic cleansing, saying to caged victims, go ahead, I'll give you a head start before I come to kill you again, is a cruel and cynical charade for which the perpetrators must be held to account, he said. You can see our full interview with Craig McIver at democracynow.org. The Pentagon says two U.S. fighter planes bombed an ammunition depot used by Iran-backed militia groups in eastern Syria Wednesday. The reported airstrike follows a series of drone and missile attacks on U.S. troops stationed in Iraq and Syria. This week, the Pentagon reported 46 injuries to U.S. military personnel over the last month. On Thursday, Yemen's Houthi rebels said they'd shot down a U.S. drone over the Red Sea and fired a barrage of long-range missiles toward Israel, they said. A Houthi spokesperson said more attacks would follow until Israel halts its aggression against Palestinians. In Paris, the United Nations' top relief official, Martin Griffiths, warned Thursday Israel's assault on Gaza is poised to trigger a much wider war across the Middle East. War indeed is a virus that always wants to expand. And the current conflict is a wildfire that could consume the region that could spread, and that we will think these have been the good days when we see what may happen tomorrow. Here in the United States, a top State Department official said Wednesday the number of Palestinians killed by Israeli airstrikes is likely far higher than the more than 10,000 reported by the Gaza Health Ministry. Barbara Leaf, the Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs, was testifying to a House panel. It is very difficult for any of us to assess what the, what the rate of casualties are. We think they're very high, frankly, and it could be that they're even higher than are being cited. We'll know only after the guns fall silent. Bar Relief's testimony comes after President Biden and senior White House officials cast doubt on the Gaza Health Ministry's count of the killed and wounded, even though human rights groups, the United Nations and even the U.S. State Department regularly cite those figures. Here in New York, hundreds of people shut down multiple streets across midtown Manhattan Thursday for another round of protests demanding a Gaza ceasefire and an end to the Israeli occupation of Palestine. Hundreds of public school students joined walkouts. Meanwhile, a large group of media workers led a march to The New York Times and later occupied the paper's building entrance for over an hour, denouncing what demonstrators called biased reporting toward Israel. Protesters read the names of the at least 36 journalists journalists killed by Israeli fire in Gaza and distributed mock newspapers with the words, the New York war crimes, accusing the Times with, quote, complicity in laundering genocide, unquote. This is Palestinian writer and poet Mohammed El-Kurd. It is incredible to see hundreds of writers and journalists take part of part of this in this action because it's telling us that journalistic malpractice such as emitting facts and passive voice and denying war crimes and treating the lives of Palestinians as though they are less than and demonizing and vilifying and dehumanizing Palestinians and Palestinian resistance is completely unacceptable if we are going to be truthful um, and if we're going to be loyal to the rules of this profession we call our own. World-renowned photographer Nan Golden has canceled a New York Times project over what she called its complicity with Israel and, quote, how they question the veracity of anything Palestinians say, unquote. 
the outspoken artist, has been active in recent protests for Palestinian rights, including this week's takeover of the Statue of Liberty by over 500 people led by Jewish Voice for Peace. Nan Golden also signed onto a letter of 2,000 artists, including Kara Walker and Tilda Swinton, demanding a ceasefire. Meanwhile, Students on college campuses across the United States have been protesting Israel's U.S.-funded assault on Gaza amidst an intensifying crackdown from school authorities. At Brown University, 20 Jewish students who participated in a sit-in to demand Brown consider a divestment resolution were arrested on Wednesday. Hundreds of fellow students sang Jewish prayers outside Brown's University Hall in solidarity with the sit-in. Students with the MIT Coalition Against Apartheid held a peaceful protest despite threats from the MIT's administration. We are all here because MIT has now threatened to suspend all peaceful protesters who took part in the No Science for Genocide demonstration. And we must fight for this voice because we are Gaza's voice outside of Palestine. There's, there's a lot of energy around this No Science for Genocide claim because a lot of people here, they come to MIT because they care about science, they care about engineering, they want to do good for the world. But the thing is that we come to MIT and become disillusioned because we find out that what world work is going for is not for good, it's not for people, it's going for war, endless war. Here in New York City, students at the Columbia School of Social Work held a sit-in protest despite multiple threats of academic sanctions. On Capitol Hill, students protested at a congressional hearing Wednesday, calling out the demonization of pro-Palestinian voices and what they called unjust charges of anti-Semitism to suppress any criticism of Israel. Students were thrown out of the hearing and arrested. The House hearing was called Free Speech on College Campuses. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, a record nearly 7 million people have been displaced due to ongoing conflict and violence. That's according to the International Organization for Migration, which warns it's one of the largest internal displacement and humanitarian crises in the world. The Congo's eastern region has been the worst hit due to fighting between dozens of armed groups. Local communities have led protests against U.N. peacekeepers, saying they failed to prevent escalating violence. Just last month, at least eight U.N. peacekeepers in eastern Congo were suspended over allegations of sexual assault. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin said Thursday he'll not seek re-election in 2024. The conservative Democratic senator has earned millions of dollars from his family-owned coal business and is Congress's largest recipient of fossil fuel industry contributions. Even as he announced his decision Thursday, Manchin appeared to leave open the possibility of a run for the White House. I believe in my heart of hearts that I have accomplished what I set out to do for West Virginia. I've made one of the toughest decisions of my life and decided that I will not be running for re-election to the United States Senate. But what I will be doing is traveling the country and speaking out to see if there is an interest in creating a movement to mobilize the middle. Senator Manchin has received the support of the billionaire-backed organization No Labels, which is exploring whether to run a third-party candidate for president. Meanwhile, Dr. Jill Stein announced Thursday she'll seek the Green Party's 2024 presidential nomination. Stein ran for the presidency in 2016. Until recently, until recently she was the presidential campaign manager for Cornell West, who was running for the Green Party nomination, but is now running independently for president. 
A federal court in Alaska has sided with the Biden administration in its approval of the Willow Project. ConocoPhillips' $8 billion oil and gas project in Alaska's Western Arctic Reserve is projected to emit more than 260 million metric tons of greenhouse gases over the next 30 years. Climate and indigenous groups who've been fighting the project say they're considering an appeal of the court's decision. The state of Texas has executed Brent Brewer, a 53-year-old who spent three decades on death row. His lawyers had argued the jury handed down a death sentence based on the testimony of a forensic psychiatrist who never examined Brewer and whose arguments were later declared to be junk science by a Texas appeals court. One of the jurors who agreed to the death sentence later recanted. And the Justice Department has launched an investigation into civil rights violations by police in the majority black Mississippi city of Lexington. This is Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark. We will assess whether the police department uses excessive force, violates people's civil and constitutional rights during stops, searches, and arrests, engages in discriminatory policing, or violates people's civil rights to engage in speech or conduct protected by the Constitution. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. If there is a hell on earth, it's the north of Gaza. Those were the words of a U.N. official earlier today as Israel intensifies its aerial and ground assault. Tens of thousands of Palestinians have fled on foot from northern Gaza after being forcibly displaced by Israel's attacks. More than half of all homes in Gaza have been destroyed or damaged over the last month. On Thursday, the Biden administration announced Israel's agreed to implement what the White House described as daily four-hour pauses in areas of northern Gaza to give Palestinians a chance to head south. Many Palestinians fear they'll never be allowed to return home. Some have accused the Biden administration of facilitating the ethnic cleansing of Gaza. Images of Palestinians fleeing on foot have been widely compared to the Nakba or catastrophe. When some 700,000 Palestinians were violently expelled from their homes upon Israel's founding in 1948. We begin today's show with the Israeli-born historian Omar Batov, who recently signed an open letter warning of Israel committing a potential genocide in Gaza. Omar Batov is a professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Brown. The United States Holocaust Memorial Museum has cited him as one of the world's leading specialists on the subject of genocide. Bartoff is the author of numerous books, including most recently Genocide, the Holocaust, and Israel-Palestine, First-Person History in Times of Crisis. Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez and I spoke to Professor Omer Bartoff on Wednesday from his home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I began by asking him to talk about his own experience serving as an Israeli soldier in the northern Sinai in the 1970s and how it's impacted his view on what's going on today. I was a, a, um, a soldier in the IDF and the Israeli Defense Forces between 1973 and 1976. Uh, and so as a young soldier, the first thing that I experienced was the, the trauma, the, the huge surprise of the Arab, the Egyptian and Syrian attack on Israel on October 6th, 1973. 
Uh, and I should say that when the Hamas attack on Israel occurred on the 7th of October 2023, uh, 50 years and a day later, um, that was quite uh, traumatic, I think, for myself and many uh, members of my generation. And we can talk further about why it was so traumatic. Uh, but in the course of my service, I also served in uh, the northern Sinai, and the command post that I belonged to was in Gaza. And so I would go quite often to Gaza, um, which was then had a population of about 350,000, was poor, um, hopeless, and congested. Um, and since then, of course, now we have between two and two and a half million people living in Gaza, which is much poorer, much more congested, and whose population is much more desperate and has been desperate for a long time, considering that it's been under Israeli siege now for 16 years. Uh, so for me, the, the, the lack of progress um, for all those years and somehow uh, resolving this this terrible humanitarian problem is 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 very personal. And I should add one thing: um, I, I was usually not employed as a soldier in in occupation duties, but there was a time that I was, and I have a very distinct recollection of that. Leading my platoon through a, an Egyptian city at the time with. Um, people looking at us from behind the windows, obviously not wanting us to be there, obviously afraid of us, and us walking on the street, obviously feeling uncomfortable being where we are and being somewhat afraid of what might happen to us as we were marching there. And that sort of sense of what being an occupation soldier means stayed with me all those years, and it's always made me has been one of the reasons, a sort of more personal rather than political, analytical reason why I've always thought that it's time to end this occupation, for which we called in that uh, August uh, 4th petition two months before uh, the Hamas attack on Israel. And, uh, Professor, I'm wondering, we hear often now these days, especially in conflicts such as these, the terms uh, crime against humanity, war crime, genocide. Uh, most people don't understand the distinction. And for some of us, war itself is a crime. Uh, uh, and uh, saying a war crime is, is almost redundant. But I'm wondering if you could uh, uh, give us more of a guidance or sense of the distinction uh, between these terms. Yes. Um, so I, th I think that's a really important question because people, as you say, just uh, use these terms without really thinking what they mean. And because um, genocide is perceived as the worst crime uh, than any atrocity that happens, anything that people think is de deserves uh, some sort of uh, extreme title, they call genocide. Uh, so there are actually... Uh, UN resolutions on war crimes uh, and on genocide, and they define them clearly. Now, one can dispute those definitions, but those are the definitions under international law. Uh, the convention, the UN convention on genocide from 1948 defines it uh, as the intent to destroy in whole or in part 
a national, ethical, racial, or religious group as such. And that's a very important definition because it calls for two things. It calls, first of all, for intention. You have to show that the killing is intentional. Uh, it's not just part of um, a war, part of violence, but it's intentional. And second, that the intention is to destroy that group defined as such by the perpetrator as such. That is, it's not the killing of individuals, it's the killing of individuals as members of a particular group. That's very different from war crimes, because war crimes are violations of the laws and customs of war against both combatants and non-combatants, civilians. Uh, And crimes against humanity uh, has to do with extermination or other mass crimes against any civilian population. You do not have to show intent, and it does not have to happen at a time of war. So it is important to distinguish between um, um, uh, these, these three categories, and I would add to it a third, which has a definition, although there is no resolution on it, which is ethnic cleansing. Uh, ethnic cleansing is the, the attempt to remove a population from a particular territory usually because you want that territory and you don't want the people living on it to stay on it. Uh, Genocide is the attempt to kill a particular group wherever it is. But there is a connection between the two because often ethnic cleansing becomes genocide. That happened, in fact, in the Armenian genocide in World War I, and it happened, in fact, also in the Holocaust, which began as an attempt to remove Jews from particular territories. And then when the Germans felt there was no place to move them to, they decided to murder them en masse. So if we think about these different categories, we can distinguish between what we we see on the ground and how we feel about it. And your sense of what is happening in terms of these uh, categories right now in Gaza? So my sense is the following. Uh, Israeli political leaders and military leaders have made very startling and, and frightening statements about Gaza, speaking about flattening Gaza, speaking about um, Hamas, but by um, 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 sort of extending it also by extend by extension also Gazas in general as human animals, uh, speaking about moving the entire population of Gaza out of Gaza. That is a clear intention of uh, ethnic cleansing. So those statements uh, show intent, and that's a genocidal intent, which is often very difficult to prove in genocide. People who carry out genocide don't always want to say that they're doing it. The second is what are they actually doing there? And military leaders on the ground keep saying that what they're trying to do is to hit Hamas targets, that Hamas often, and I think that's uh, often true, uh, places its own headquarters, uh, rockets, and so forth, uh, under hospitals, uh, inside mosques, uh, playgrounds, schools, and so forth. So the military claim that they're trying to hit Hamas, not the population, but unfortunately, uh, the, the population is also getting killed. In that sense, there is clearly disproportionate killing of civilians. That is, the numbers, as you quoted earlier, are now estimated to be over 10,000. And even if we don't believe the numbers given out by Hamas, they're still uh, in the many thousands. They may have even be more 
because many bodies are probably buried under the debris. And of those, at least 4,000 are children. And one has to remember that half of the population of Gaza is under 18 years old. So to me, there is an indication that there are war crimes happening in Gaza, potentially also crimes against humanity. Whether at the moment this is genocide, my own sense is that it is not genocide at the moment because there is still no clear indication of an attempt to destroy the entire population, which would be genocide but that we are very close on the verge of that. And if this so-called operation continues, uh, that may become ethnic cleansing. In part, it's already happened with the move of so many Palestinians from northern Gaza to southern Gaza, and that may become genocide. Professor Omer Bartov, I was really struck by you saying it was in August that you joined other leading historians and Israeli scholars in signing this letter criticizing the, quote, regime of apartheid. So that is two months before uh, Hamas attack of October 7th. Now, often these days, after the attack that killed over 1,300 people in Israel, if you raise any kind of context, you're accused of justifying um, what happened. Uh, if you, as a historian, can talk about your use of that term—I remember years ago interviewing the Nobel laureate, Archbishop um, Tutu, in South Africa, um, and he said when he went to the occupied territories, he found it worse than apartheid in his own country of South Africa, which he survived. So your clearly thought-out use of this term, and then a discussion about um, what it means to uh, try to explain what's happening, including using the term occupation. So let me say, when we crafted that that, that statement, um, uh, and and we worked on it quite a bit uh, in July, and finally issued it, uh, so-called the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room that we were talking about um, was the occupation, and um, which we defined um, as in the West Bank as a regime of apartheid. Now, the reason we did it at the time was that, as you remember, there was there were vast protests in Israel at the time against the Netanyahu's government, the Netanyahu government's attempt to so-called overhaul the judicial system, which was really an attempt to undermine the rule of law in Israel, to strengthen the executive and weaken the judiciary, which is the only control uh, over the executive in Israel, with the goal of extending the occupation regime uh, in the West Bank, uh, and finally of annexing uh, that area and making life impossible for the Palestinian population there. There are over half a million Jewish settlers there and somewhere around three million Palestinians living there. Now, what do we mean by apartheid? Uh, first of all, people tend to uh, think of apartheid as what happened in South Africa, and the, the term comes from there. But there is, in fact, a UN resolution on apartheid that defines what apartheid is. And curiously, uh, all the elements of um, the, that are mentioned in that resolution exist also um, in the West Bank. The most important of which is that you have two populations in the West Bank, Jews and Palestinians. 
the Jews, the settlers, are extraterritorial Israeli citizens. They live under Israeli law or some kind of figment that creates them as living under Israeli law. They can vote uh, to the Israeli parliament. Uh, they enjoy all the rights of democracy the Jews in Israel enjoy. The Palestinians live, the Palestinians there live under a completely different set of laws, which give them also, almost no rights at all. That is, um, they live under a military regime. They're tried before military courts, uh, where the judges are lawyers on reserve service, Israeli lawyers on reserve service. Uh, one can, uh, detain them endlessly in prison. And so, these are two groups that live under totally different laws. They're also separated from each other by a set of roads, um, roadblocks, uh, checkposts that make life increasingly difficult uh, for Palestinians and make life much better for the Jewish population there. So from that point of view, there's clearly a, an apartheid regime in the West Bank, and that has in many ways filtered into Israel. That is, uh, generation after generation of young Israeli men and women are called up and go to serve as policemen uh, in, in the West Bank in, in military uniform. Most of what they do is police the population. And that has a corrupting impact on more and more generations of Israelis who get used to the idea that they can break into homes at four in the morning, um, uh, arrest whoever they like. Um, and so that uh, effect is not only that we have an apartheid regime, but we have a corruption of democracy in Israel itself, which ultimately resulted in this attempt by Netanyahu's regime to change the very system of, of democracy in Israel, which was really only for Jews in the first place. And Professor, I'm wondering if you you mentioned previously the acquiescence or the refusal to confront the problem in general in Israeli society uh, of the occupation. Uh, why do you think that is, especially given the fact that uh, Israel in its er early uh, years had a very vibrant labor, socialist and humanitarian movement uh, among those who, who created the state of Israel? What has happened? Well, I would say, I mean, the, 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 the simple answer is that power corrupts um, um, and that Israel has suffered for years uh, from a kind of euphoria of power. And when I talked about the sort of link between what happened in 1973 and what happened in 2023, it is exactly that. That is that Israel came to believe that it's strong enough to be able to do what it likes and it does not need to have any political compromise, um, which means territorial compromise. Uh, the War of 1973 could have been avoided uh, had Israel agreed to negotiate with Anwar Sadat at the time, the president of Egypt, uh, which it did eventually after the war uh, and returned the Sinai Peninsula and received peace in return. But 3,000 Israeli soldiers were killed, uh, some of whom were my classmates. Uh, and the same 
happened now, that is, Israel refused to uh, talk about uh, any territorial compromise and believes that Hamas can lob a few rockets here and there, but by and large, it's not a problem for it. And therefore, there's no need to think of any territorial compromise. And this, um, you know, became the, the, the sense in the large large sectors of uh, the Israeli public. People could live in Tel Aviv, um, have a good time, have a good life, and 20 miles to their east, uh, there was an apartheid regime, but it really had very little to do with them. And the curious thing was, and this is what we were trying to point out in August, was that the people who were protesting, the hundreds of thousands of Israelis who quite remarkably went out to the streets every Saturday to protest against the erosion of democracy in Israel, refused to talk about the occupation. And when I was there protesting against that, we were marginalized. We were pushed to the side and people said, well, occupation, that's a kind of, that's a difficult term. You know, not everybody agrees on that. Let's not talk about it now. It'll divert attention. Whereas, in fact, it was the core of the very attempt to change the rules of the game in Israel. In a moment, we'll return to our interview with Omer Bartov, professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Brown University. The Israeli-American scholar has been described by the U.S. Holocaust Museum as one of the world's leading specialists on the subject of genocide. Back in 20 seconds. Nasak by Clarissa Nabil Bitar, lyrics by the Palestinian poet Mohammed al Kurd. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. We return to Omer Bartov, professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Brown University. The Israeli American scholar has been described by the U.S. Holocaust Museum as one of the world's leading specialists on genocide. He spoke to us on Wednesday, one day after the House voted to censure Rashida Tlaib, the only Palestinian American member of Congress for her criticism of Israel. Professor Bartov, you are a professor at Brown University um, in Providence. You're in Cambridge right now. And I wanted to ask you about the dissent on college campuses and how they're being dealt with. In Cambridge, at Harvard, uh, you know about the students um, who were protesting on behalf of Palestinian rights. A truck carries around their faces, and above their faces it says, um, anti-Semite. Um, and on television, you'll see pieces on anti-Semitism, which is very real in the world. For example, the burning of the uh, Austrian cemetery uh, in Vienna um, and many other situations. But they will be blended together. This is on the mainstream networks with images of people protesting holding a Palestinian flag. Can you talk about what's happening on college campuses and people fearing that um, their concern for justice is being translated as anti-Semitism and cause for them to be blacklisted? So, look, this is a very uh, complex issue, I agree. Um, I think part of it 
is, uh, frankly, ignorance about the uh, reality on the ground in Israel-Palestine. And, and that has to do, uh, obviously, not with your show, but with um, uh, much of how the mainstream media uh, in the United States is presenting things. But also, um, young people, students can find other sources of information to better know uh, what is happening on the ground. So generally, I think there's a little bit of, of, of uh, issue of information. Anti-Semitism is real, as you say, and has been growing and is a not just lamentable, but, but, but frightening phenomenon. Um, and, and I obviously have no sympathy with it. Uh, but there is, and there has been for a long time, a tendency to label any criticism of the state of Israel uh, any criticism of the policies of any particular government, uh, let alone criticism of Israel as a state, as such, as anti-Semitism. And that is a policy of the right wing in Israel, and that's a policy of the right wing in, in this country, and it has nothing to do with the truth. One can be a Zionist or a non-Zionist or an anti-Zionist and not be anti-Semitic. One can be... Uh, uh, and against Zionists, but against particular Israeli policies, I very strongly support the existence of the state of Israel, and I'm highly critical of its policies. And some people would call me a self-hating Jew. Uh, but that is nonsense. That has to do with criticism of policies that not only uh, uh, um, um, function as oppression of Palestinians uh, over a very long period of time, 56 years of occupation of Palestinians, a refusal by the Israeli government to ever talk about what happened in 1948. Uh, so this kind of uh, shutting up the entire conversation, and at the same time, a belief that uh, Jews, like other nations, have a right of self-determination. So we have to separate the two. I think that at the moment, uh, in the demonstrations, there there is a sort of heightening of passions. And in part, it is because of the policies of the Israeli government. Uh, I do feel that when people uh, march uh, uh, in support of Palestinian lives, um, and 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 I'm I'm very much in favor of that. One does also have to remember uh, what happened on October seventh? Uh, on October seventh, uh, over a thousand um, um, Jewish civilians, Israeli Jewish civilians. There were actually some Arabs there too, some Bedouin who lived there too. Uh, were butchered in the most heinous manner. Uh, and, and this was live streamed. Uh, this has been deeply wounding to Israeli society. Almost every person in Israel knows people who were killed there or kidnapped, uh, including myself, members of my own family who are either killed or, or are now in Gaza. Uh, and one has to recall that there are 240 people now held as hostages. Um, and so I think that when one protests the policies of Israel, uh, for 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 the sake of and and this has to do also with what uh, Representative Talib said, which I completely agree with. I thought it was a very moving speech, but I think it's important to also stress that other side. There has been a a dehumanization of both sides, 
uh, occupation dehumanizes people. It dehumanizes the occupier and it dehumanizes the occupied. And the way to deal with this is to talk about the, the, the political future. How do we move forward? A ceasefire would be wonderful, and I'm very much in support of it, but it won't put an end to the violence. The end to the violence will come only as a result of a peaceful resolution of this hundred-year-old conflict, which has cost so much blood. That is, I think, what we should uh, try to push the American administration to do, to change its policies, to put pressure on the Israeli government to finally relent and to begin again negotiations with the Palestinians. And let me ask you about the term from the river to the sea, um, which uh, the Israeli government takes um, and those who charge others with anti-Semitism say uh, it means the annihilation of the Jewish population of Israel. I'm looking at the Likud party platform of March 1977, the right of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, Eretz Yisrael, which is the land of Israel. And it says the right of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. Israel is eternal and indisputable and is linked with the right to security and peace. Therefore, Judea and Samaria will not be handed to any foreign administration between the sea and the Jordan. There will only be Israeli sovereignty. That's between the sea and the Jordan River, between the river and the sea. Can you talk about that term? Yes, you know, uh, the, the originators of the Likud party, the revisionist, uh, part of the, of, uh, Zionism, um, under the, the great leader Jabotinsky, uh, had a song, uh, that, that they used to sing. And the song was, uh, the Jordan has two banks. This one belongs to us and the other one too. Uh, that is, they were not only talking actually about uh, so-called historical Palestine, which is mandatory Palestine uh, of the interwar period. They were actually talking also about parts of the Jordan, uh, of what is now uh, the Kingdom of Jordan as uh, belonging to the future Jewish state. So when we talk about from the Jordan to the sea, uh, we, we are talking about the territory that is now controlled by Israel. And that territory, there are now 7 million Jews and 7 million Palestinians. 2 million Palestinians were Israeli citizens, 3 million Palestinians were in the West Bank, and 2 to 2.5 million Palestinians, uh, most of the population of Gaza are refugees um, in, in Gaza. Uh, so it's 7 million versus 7 million. Um, to talk about a Palestinian state or a Jewish state between the Jordan and the sea, the question, of course, arises, so what happened to the, what will happen to the other half? Um, that is really the question. Uh, if one talks about a Palestinian state that refuses to recognize uh, the Jewish right uh, of self-determination, that is, of the right of Jews to have a state of their own, the question is, what would happen to the Jews there? Would they Go back to Europe, as some people say, whatever that actually means. And if you have a state the way the Israeli right, the Likud party, and now the much more radical, um, um, really Jewish supremacist elements in uh, Netanyahu's government, the Smotrich and Ben Gvir, these people who sort of trace their roots back to Rabbi Kahana, who who were really Nazis, uh, if you think, if you ask yourself, what do they mean? 
they want to create a Jewish state that does not have Palestinians in it, no Arabs in it. And the policy has been consistently to make life as unbearable for the Palestinians there so that either they will finally move out, which they have no intention of doing, or to use an emergency situation such as exists right now under the cover of which they could be ethnically cleansed. And that's a major worry now among Palestinians who are Israeli citizens who are worried about a second Nakba, a second expulsion of Palestinians after 1948, something that has been mentioned by a number of uh, Israeli politicians, and of course a major worry in the West Bank and in Gaza. So what we need to think of is not uh, the term from the Jordan to the sea, which is the territory that Israel now controls, but how does that territory get to be shared by these two groups in ways that do not include oppression, lack of any rights, lack of equality, and certainly does not include violence and expulsion. And finally, uh, Professor Omer Bartov, the issue of a two-state solution or one-state solution, if you could take that on in a nutshell. Yes. So, you know, I I used to be a strong supporter of the two-state solution, and I gradually realized that this was a sort of fig leaf of the Israeli left while um, the country kept settling the West Bank and making it impossible to create an independent uh, Palestinian state there. And we kept saying, well, but at the end, there will be a two-state solution. So the traditional two-state solution, to my mind, is no longer viable. So what is viable? And I think, and I, I belong to a, a a group of people who've been talking about it uh, for quite a while, uh, that the only solution is a confederation, which would mean that there would be two states, there would be a Jewish state and a Palestinian state, they both would have uh, full sovereignty, and they would be along more or less the borders of 1967, um, um, the, the Green Line, so-called, uh, but they would make a distinction between residency and citizenship so that people, say Jews, who live in a Palestinian state could remain Israeli uh, citizens uh, who have rights of residency in a Palestinian state but have to then uh, adhere to all the laws, rules, and regulations of that Palestinian state. And Palestinians who live, say, in Nablus and would like to live in Haifa, like a Frenchman from Paris who would like to live in Berlin, could move to Haifa, and they could have rights of residency, uh, but they'd have to conform to all the rules and regulations of the Israeli state, but they would vote for uh, to a, a, a Palestinian parliament. And Jerusalem would be the joint capital of both. Uh, and above that, there would be institutions that would take care of the mutual affairs of these two states, which are very tightly woven together now by their infrastructure, electricity, um, uh, water, and so forth. It's really impossible to cut them apart. That is right now, of course, sounds like a pipe dream, but I think that in the long run, that is probably the only viable solution. And I'll add one last thing to that, which is very important both to Jews and Palestinians, which is that both states would have the right of return. The Jews could say, as they say now, 
that Jews who want to become Israeli citizens wherever they live can come. And Palestinians in the Palestinian state could say all Palestinian refugees who would like to come back to Palestine could come and become Palestinian citizens and under certain rules could also move to the Israeli part of so-called mandatory Palestine as residents. And why not simply a one-state solution? I think a one-state solution is something that neither one side nor the other wants, because the Palestinians quite rightly want the right of self-determination, want to have their own state, as do the Jews. And both sides are afraid that the other side would be more powerful. Obviously, uh, right now, under current conditions, uh, the uh, the state of Israel is much more powerful uh, militarily, economically, uh, than the Palestinian part of 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 the land. And so, in that sense, a one state solution would actually perpetuate um, uh, Jewish supremacy in the whole country. Omer Bartov is professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Brown University. The Israeli-American scholar is one of the world's leading specialists on the subject of genocide. He recently signed an open letter warning of Israel committing a potential genocide in Gaza. Coming up, three Palestinian groups have petitioned the International Criminal Court to investigate Israel for committing genocide and apartheid. Back in 30 seconds. Marwan Halabi. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Three Palestinian human rights groups have filed a lawsuit with the International Criminal Court calling on the ICC to issue arrest warrants for Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and other leaders for genocide, incitement to genocide, and the crime of apartheid. The three groups, Al-Haq, Amizan, and the Palestinian Center for Human Rights told the court that Israel's suffocating siege of Gaza and the indiscriminate attacks on densely populated civilian areas amount to war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. The lawsuit also seeks the arrest of Israeli President Isaac Herzog and the defense minister Yoav Gallant. This comes as the death toll in Gaza is nearing 11,000 according to Palestinian health officials. 
We're joined now by Palestinian human rights attorney Nora Erekat, associate professor at Rutgers University, author of Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine, part of the Palestinian team of academics, intellectuals and activists who helped bring the ICC lawsuit. She's joining us from Philadelphia. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Nora. If you can explain what this lawsuit is all about. Absolutely. Uh, this lawsuit comes as a collective effort on behalf of the three organizations you mentioned, Al-Haq, Al-Mizan, the Palestinian Center for Human Rights, who are on the ground and documenting the ongoing uh, atrocities. It's one of a myriad of efforts that have been filed before the International Criminal Court. For example, very recently, Reporters Without, uh, Reporters Without Borders have also submitted a petition calling on the ICC to investigate the now killing of 34 journalists, several of them, while they were working um, during this onslaught. The one thing that we want to highlight as the ad hoc team is that this is not merely a lawsuit against Israeli individuals as stipulated by the petition, which it very much is, but it is also holding on trial the International Criminal Court the international criminal law, international legal institutions as a whole, which have demonstrated an absolute double standard when it comes to the global south. We've seen this in the, the tenure of the ICC, which since its establishment has opened over two dozen cases, all of them on the African continent. The, all those who have been indicted, with the, the exception of Slobodan Milosevic, have been Arab and African uh, individuals, heads of states, officials. And so here we are pushing the ICC to either hold Israel to account in what is an ongoing genocide where the leaders of it have told us very much that they have the specific intent to destroy a Palestinian people in whole or in part and demonstrated the specific underlying acts in order to effectuate it. Uh, or demonstrate for us that this is actually a, 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 a moment where the ICC demonstrates that it's not effectuate, that it's not effective, that it is actually uh, part of, of punishing a global South and, and letting Western countries move forward with impunity. We spoke to Raji Sarani, the world-renowned human rights attorney in Gaza, in Gaza City, and the heartbreaking uh, plea from Raji, who remained in northern Gaza um, after his house was bombed. Uh, he particularly held uh, Karim Khan, the lead prosecutor of the ICC, uh, called him out, saying, uh, when Russia attacked the children of Ukraine, the ICC immediately uh, opened war crimes investigations um, and then raised the issue of where is he on Israel and Palestine? If you can address this and also talk about an ICC uh, case that has already been opened, an official investigation into possible war crimes committed by Israel in the West Bank back in 2021 in West Bank, in uh, Gaza and East Jerusalem. Raji is absolutely right. Uh, Karim Khan, the, the prosecutor of the ICC, opened the investigation within a week of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, issued an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin for the forcible um, transfer of Ukrainian children to Russia, immediately, without question. In this case, it took it took the prosecutor, Karim Khan, three weeks to travel to Rafah in order to investigate what was in the first week an evident example of genocidal intent, mass killings, the destruction of 
of those conditions of life that would reduce the ability of Palestinians to, sur to survive. In this situation, what we see is a, not merely a repetition of history, but a continuation of colonial legacies, and one that led to the failure of the League of Nations, frankly, in the aftermath of Italy's invasion of Ethiopia in 1935, where a fascist Italy led by Mussolini invaded Ethiopia. And in that moment, Ethiopia, which was a member state of the League of Nations, and rather than hold Italy to account, which was dropping indiscriminate chemical weapons, on the Ethiopian people. Instead, the Red Cross decried the Ethiopians as being too savage to follow the laws of war. Media were running headlines that Ethiopians were hiding and sheltering in hospital, using them as human shields. And world powers failed to impose uh, sufficient sanctions on Italy in this moment. And this demonstrated the limits of these international um, institutions and led to the failure of the League of Nations in a similar—we are in a similar moment right now. These international institutions need to act. And instead, we're seeing a stalemate and we're seeing international um, leaders like the, led by the United States, as well as the UK, as well as France, who are basically providing a green light to Israel to commit genocide, to commit these atrocities. This is not out of nowhere. Everything started before October, before October 7th. And Israel, this is a moment where Israel has not been held to account. It is a systematic failure to hold Israel to account for decades. International organizations have said that Israel is practicing the crime against humanity of apartheid. There was a near consensus between 20, 2020 and 2021. And yet, rather than impose sanctions in that moment, rather than mobilize international mechanisms and institutions in order to dismantle apartheid, we saw the United States celebrate and normalize Israeli apartheid, and we saw them continuing to normalize relations with other Arab regimes. It was this fundamental failure that has led us to this moment and an ongoing crisis of a lack of accountability, of an imposition of two types of law, one for the global north, one for the global south. This is a hypocrisy on the part of Western um, governments and, and demonstrates that there, there is no such thing as Western universalism, but instead continues to be two sets of laws on two sets of people. And, and what's wonderful, the only thing that provides us hope is that a mass, mass movement of individuals, peoples, communities have risen up against their governments also to demonstrate the hypocrisy of, of Western democracy. Even in the United States, consider that 66% of Americans have demanded a ceasefire. 80% of registered Democrats have demanded a ceasefire. And yet only 19 out of 535 members of Congress have endorsed it. Consider that that same Congress censored the only Palestinian American representative in government at the very moment that she represents the majority. So this is not just a crisis of international legal institutions, but also a crisis of democratic or so-called democratic institutions in the countries in which we live. And how does the tens of thousands of Palestinians being forced south right now—we just have 20 seconds—fit into your charges of war crimes and crimes against humanity? What we're seeing is an ongoing nakba of the Palestinians who are with their hands up and, and, and on their feet with white handkerchiefs in order not to be killed. This is an ethnic cleansing of the north of Gaza. It's a continuation of the Nakba to take the Palestinian land without Palestinian people. It is a crime against humanity and fits in a larger framework of, of genocidal warfare. 
Palestinian human rights attorney Noura Arakat, uh, associate professor at Rutgers University, we thank you so much. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.